We're going to begin today in Luke chapter 19. We're getting back to the book of Luke after our little separation to Christmas stories. Uh, so let's bow our heads as we open in prayer. Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. Help us to see what you would want us to see as we look at your final week of life in, in the book of Luke. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 29. And it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethlehem and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go you into the village over against you, in, the, in which you at your entering you shall find a colt tied, whereupon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him here. And if any man ask you, Why do you loose him? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of him. And they that were sent went their way and found, even as he had said unto them. And, and as they were loosing the, the colt, the owners thereof said unto him, Why loose you the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as they went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King that comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke your disciples. And he, said unto, and he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stone would immediately cry out. We want to look at this because we are entering into the last week of Jesus' life. The entire scripture is geared toward this last week of Jesus' life, his death, burial, and resurrection. We see his picture all through this. Even in the Gospels, we think about the Gospels Almost a third of the Gospels chapters are in the last week of Jesus' life. And we don't really think about that because how often do we really get taught about the, the last week of Jesus' life as a, as a whole thought process? So much happened in the last week that we also kind of forget that it's the last week of his life. Jesus has been persecuted almost the full last year of his ministry. And then he... And every time he kept saying when they wanted to make him king, they said, him, it is not my time or my time is not yet. They couldn't arrest him because it wasn't his time. And he would slip out from amongst the crowd without being arrested. So we see this over and over. But now he's making a direct declaration that now is the time. I'm come to fulfill what I came for. And, you know, we've got to remember that as we just came out of the Christmas season, why was Jesus born a baby in the first place? Is so that he could be a man to live a perfect life so he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. He was born to die. Just as the song that we just sang, that we three kings, he said, you know, born to die. And that is the purpose that Jesus came to this world for. He came knowing that he was going to be the sacrifice for sin. And over and over again, he kept telling the disciples for the four years they were with him, you know, I'm going to go and die and then I will resurrect. And the, the disciples never understood what he was saying. That didn't make sense to them. How can somebody die and come back? You know, they, they had problems with this whole process. And here we see Jesus. 
He is in Bethphage and Bethany. Now this is kind of an interesting thing because Bethphage is about 15 miles away from Jerusalem. Bethany is two miles away from Bethlehem, uh, excuse me, Jerusalem, not Bethlehem. So he's somewhere between the two when he starts his trip. Because when he sends his disciples to go get the donkey and come back, he still makes a trip back into Jerusalem on the donkey. So he's probably closer to Bethany than he is to Bethage. But he's somewhere between the two because 15-mile trip and then they come back and join him would be 30 miles. That's a lot of walking even, even for that day. All right, even, even somebody who's well in shape would have a hard time making a 30-mile trip, and that would just be to send them back and come back, and then they got to go back again, which would be about 45 miles. You know, so it's a little, little far for this trip to, to happen. So somewhere between the two, and we know that Mount Olivet is about 14 miles, so he's closer to, to Mount, Mount Olivet and Bethany than he is Bethany. So this is giving you just some key factors, because most of you don't know the geography of that area, um, to say that they're making a pretty good, pretty good trek. He's going to travel 14 miles that day just to get into town. Now, if you're in shape, I know you can do, you know, 20 miles, you know, in about four hours or so, and they, and they were used to walking, so it wouldn't, wouldn't have been that big a deal. You know, if we tried to do 14 miles, we'd probably be out of shape and not make it 14 miles, but for most of us, uh, you know, we'd just jump in the car and go 14 miles and be there in about 10 minutes. Uh, didn't take them that fast. So Jesus is actually, though, he's also showing the fact that he's God and he's omniscient because he's telling them, I want you to go in this village and there you're going to find a donkey tied up that has never been ridden on. Now, even if he had made plans with an owner that one day he's going to come and get the donkey, that owner's not going to know what day it's going to be. So this is God really showing his omniscience. I know that there's, you're going to go into this town and you're going to find a, a young, young donkey that nobody's ever ridden on and you're going to bring it to me. And when, you know, he says if, but he knows it's when. And when you're asked, why are you doing this? Your answer is going to be the master has need of it. In this case, he is speaking as a king. The king has need of it. When a king wants something, or wanted something, especially back in those old days, they don't have as much power anymore. Everything belonged to them anyway, so they would just say the king wants it. You know, your prize horse, your building, your, 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 your stores, whatever it might be, if the king wanted it, they said the king wants it, you give it to him. And so Jesus, in this case, is basically speaking as the king. The king needs your, your donkey, and we're taking it to him. And this is a very, you know, we kind of miss this statement because it doesn't strike us in that same, same format. It's almost like, well, he needs it. But it is actually him speaking as a king. The king needs this animal, so he's taking it. And he lets it go. Why? We don't know. We don't know this man. We don't know anything about the man who was given this message. You know, nothing about him at all is given, given to us. So we just don't, we don't know if he's one of Jesus' disciples, one of his followers, just a random person, you know, that is taking the message and hearing the king, you know, the, the Lord, the, the master needs it. But he doesn't put up an argument. And horse thievery was just as bad in those days as it was in our day, or in the older days. We don't have many horse wrestlers in today's world, but... In the 1800s, you know, you got shot or, shot or hung for stealing horses, and they, they weren't any nicer to you for stealing their animals because animals were very pricey. 
all right? Uh, you had to have money to even have a donkey. And people, you know, we kind of think of why would anybody want to ride a donkey? Well, donkeys were sure-footed. They, they were, had high endurance. They actually got you further than the horse would because the horse would tire out faster. And the donkey would just keep going and keep going and keep going. Um, and the horses were faster, but they also wore out faster. And they were very much, they were more expensive. But this whole process is Jesus is going to come as the king riding into Jerusalem. Now, one of the things about that period of time is if a king rode in on a horse, they were coming in as a conqueror. And they were conquering. If they came in on a donkey, they were coming in peace. So what was Jesus telling the people? I'm coming in on a donkey. I'm coming in as a peaceful king. I'm not coming in as the conqueror. I'm coming in as your friend and your help. So this is a whole lot in behind this story that's going on. It's the picture of him saying, what were the people looking for? They were looking for a conqueror. They wanted Rome kicked out of the country, so they were looking for him coming in on a, on a white charger and sword in hand and shield and, and armor, and they were ready for somebody to come in and fight Rome and kick them out. How does he come in? On a donkey, saying, I come in peace. I'm coming in for your benefit because I have something else to plan. And it's kind of an interesting thing, this whole process. They bring this donkey, in it, and you may not have noted, it said, on which no one has ridden. What is this also showing us? His power over nature again. Uh, now, I've never actually got on an animal that has never been broken, but I have watched all kinds of shows on it, and I've watched rodeos and stuff, and those animals usually do not like having things having people on their back until they're broken. Whether it be a horse or a steer or, you know, I've watched the kids get up, be loaded up on, on lambs, and the lambs don't like people on their back. <laughs> All right? Um, I'm sure that the donkey did not like anybody on his back. And yet it didn't try to throw Jesus or just sit down or whatever. It actually made the trip from wherever it was to Jerusalem with no problem. His power even over animals. And Jesus has constantly been showing his power. One of, one of his first miracles for them was the, the, when he said, throw your nets out over the, over the side of the boat, and they got a catch that was so full that they almost sunk their boats. He showed this power over the storm that was sinking the ship, and he says, peace, be still, and the entire storm stopped. He, he told Peter, when Peter one time said, you know, it was asked, do, your, do you and your master pay the temple tax? And, and Peter said, yeah, sure we do. Where did Jesus said? He said, go fish, drop your, drop your line in and catch a fish and you'll find a coin in there, go pay our taxes. And just managed to catch a fish with a gold coin in its mouth to pay the taxes. Over and over again, Jesus showed his power over nature for the disciples to see. He showed his power over all the things that were happening so that they could understand. What was he trying to teach them? He is faithful. He is faithful. All through the scriptures we see that God is faithful. And yet how many times in the scriptures and even in our lives do we forget that God is faithful? We come into a trial or tribulation and the first thing we think of is this looks miserable. I can't get out of this. There's no way out. Well, there may not be a way out to us, but God knows the way out if we will just learn to trust him. 
Now, I understand because I make the same mistake often myself. Learning to trust him is not easy. And the more you learn to trust him, the more situations he puts you in that are very hard to see the answer for. Because he's going to say, do you really, truly trust me? And we think about this, you know, I, I think all the time about Jesus rebuking the storm. It said that the disciples were fearful because the boat was sinking. Now, we kind of think, okay, well, the boat is sinking, big deal. Well, the ones that were fearful, at least four of them were fishermen who were used to boats. They were sailors. If they said the boat was sinking, that boat was sinking. I mean, it would be one thing for Matthew to say, uh, the boat's got a little bit of water in it, I think it's sinking. Or Simon the Zealot coming in and saying, well, I think the boat is sinking. But when John and Peter and Andrew say the boat is sinking, the boat's sinking. <laughs> All right. Those guys knew boats. They knew the water. They knew that there was more water coming into the boat than they could get out of the boat and they were in trouble. All right. And what did Jesus say? Oh, ye of little faith. I told you you were going to the other side and now you're worried about sinking. How many times do we do that in our life where God tells us to do something and in the middle of what he tells us to do, we look at the situations going on around us and say, oh my goodness, uh, my boat is sinking. I don't understand how anything can happen. Nothing good is happening. And God is saying, just trust me. We need to learn to be able to trust him. It's not easy. I'm not, I'm not trying to say it's easy, but we need to learn to trust him. The more we learn to trust him, the easier it gets. As everything that we do in our spiritual walk, the more we do what we're asked to do, the easier it gets to do what he asks us to do. But by the same token, the harder the tests get for us to, to follow through. And so these guys get the donkey, they go to the town, they get the donkey, they give Jesus the, Jesus' message to the owner. And the first thing they do is throw garments on the donkey for Jesus to sit on. Now what is that doing for them? It is teaching them that it is a sign of honor that the king is coming to put your, put your clothing underneath him. It happened uh, one time in uh, 2 Kings, where's my note on that one? 2 Kings 9.13, when Jehu became king and the people threw their, their, their outer garments, their coats under him so he could sit on the donkey and be carried into, into the city. So it's not something that was first time done in Jesus' day. It was done as a way to show an honor. I am submitting myself to you and here I'm going to go ahead and put my outer garment underneath you so that you can have the honor. And then they laid their cloaks in front of him. Now, King James says clothes, but the word in Greek is their outer garments, their, their coats. They're laying them in the street. And as he's coming down the street, and they're laying palm branches. Now, these both have the same message. Laying down their cloaks was the idea of their giving honor to the king. And palm branches were used in victory cer ceremonies. So when a king or a general would march into a into a city in victory, palm branches would be put out in front of them, and honor would be they'd throw out their coats. Now, I don't know what that would do to your coats to have a, you know, for, one, for Jesus, it's not too bad. There's only one animal in there, but can you imagine their coats being stomped on by a, 
by a donkey as it's walking through. Uh, it would be even worse if there was a whole army. You, know, you would never want your coat back. But it was a way to give honor, show that this person is better than I am, and I'm giving them this honor. And this is as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. It's called the triumphant entry. It is in all four Gospels. It's the only event that is in every single one of the Gospels, the triumphant entry. Daniel's 69th week when the king would be returning. And Jesus rebuked the people. He said, you should have known that this time was coming. If you had just calculated your numbers, you would have known that it was six. It had been the, the right time for it. It had been 463 years since Cyrus told you to come back. So you should have known that the Messiah was coming. He rebuked them on more than one occasion that you did not recognize the time. So he's coming in on the day that he was supposed to come into Jerusalem to claim to be king. And he comes coming in. And the people are rejoicing. They're excited. The king is coming. They have been under Roman occupation for several decades at this point, and they're tired of Rome being in charge of them. They're looking for a rescuer. That's not what he came for. Not the way they think it. He did come as a rescuer, but not as a physical rescuer. He came to rescue the soul. They don't understand that. They don't fully comprehend that. But they're excited. The Messiah has come. The Messiah has raised people from the dead. He has healed, healed people. He has fed the multitude. They're looking at him. Here comes our rescuer. He is going to make everything good. The way we want it to be. And what is our problem most of the time? Is that we want God to do things our way. I'm as guilty as that as everybody else, you know. Uh, God, uh, I would just like you to do things the way I would like them done. <laughs> and this is what they're doing in this, in this time as they're worshiping the king coming in. The rescuer's coming. We're going to get rid of Rome. We're, this is a man who's going to make everybody healthy. He's going to be able to feed everybody. There'll be no famines. There'll be no sickness. He's going to be the one to get rid of Rome. And we are going to be fat, happy, and sassy because we've got the greatest leader who's ever existed coming into Jerusalem. That was their attitude at this point in time. All the wrong reasons, but they had seen so much. He had just fed 5,000 people. He had just healed blind people. Lazarus, even though Luke doesn't mention it, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Other people have been raised from the dead. He's healed blindnesses. He's, he's healed sicknesses and all these things. He's feeding people. And they're looking at him. This is going to be the greatest king that we could ever have. And he's coming into Jerusalem. And they're giving him the worship of a king. And, they're, and they say to him, Blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Uh, this is a quote from Psalm 118, 22 through 27. That when the king comes, these are the words that they're going to use. The Pharisees hear this and they get a little irritated. <laughs> All right. Uh, hey, uh, Jesus, uh, you've got a little bit of problem here. These guys are quoting Messianic scriptures at you. You're riding in in a fulfillment of Zechariah 9, 9, 8 on a donkey, or 9, 9, excuse me, on a donkey. Uh, you know, you're kind of making this look like you're the Messiah. 
Would you please stop these people from making all this racket and ruckus? You know, uh, actually, we're, they could have been saying, uh, we don't like the idea that our power is going to be taken away. Would you just shut these people up? Because we don't believe that you're really the Messiah, even though you're fulfilling all the requirements of the Messiah. Here's a battle of will. The ones who are in charge of the local government are the scribes and Pharisees in the Sanhedrin. They're under Rome. Rome is taxing them and all this other stuff. But because Jerusalem and Israel capitulated to Rome and, and surrendered to Rome, they were able to keep their government in place under Rome. Now, may or may not know this in history, but anybody who decided that Rome to fight with Rome got defeated by Rome, and Rome says, you do not get to be your own people. You, are, you, you decided to fight against us, so you don't get to keep your own religion. You don't get to keep your own government. You are now completely subservient to Rome. They would send ambassadors into you and say, well, okay, you have a choice. You can surrender or fight. If you surrendered, you got to be like the Jews did, where you can keep your, keep your little governments in place and, and be basically doing things the way you've always done it, with Rome being above you and you pay your taxes to Rome. Or you could fight with Rome. And for many, many decades or a few centuries, nobody beat Rome. All right, Rome, Rome went into battle and won. And so the Jews capitulated, and they got to keep most everything. So the Sanhedrin is like, okay, Jesus, it looks like you're trying to upset the apple cart here. We have this nice little piece. Yeah, we have to pay taxes. We have to do things their way. We have to put up with their military in our place and, and taking what they want. But, you know, basically, we have a pretty good thing going here. We get to worship. We have our temple. We get to have our kings and, and leaders in place. Would you just quit trying to upset the apple cart? All right. Kind of like an American revolution. I don't know if you all realize, but when, when America revolted against England, only about 20% of the population was for the battle. Now, the 20% that was for it were very vocal and very strong, but, and they brought about a revolution against England, which they were in the minority of, and managed to beat England. And so this is what the, Jesus is looking like to them. Okay, Jesus, you're a very small minority of people following you, would you? But we do not want to see trouble because people who give Rome trouble get beat up. So would you just please tell everybody to be quiet? You know, and this is, their, this is their attitude. They don't care whether this is of God or not. They don't care that everything seems to be falling in place on the prophecies. They don't care that the timing on this is just like Daniel said it would be. They don't care about any of these things. All they're looking at is our power is going to go away. All of our nice, peaceful coexistence with Rome is in danger of being a big battle. And we may have a battle here because you're, you're coming in claiming to be the Messiah. From a practical point of view, they had good points. Quit trying to make things a mess. Quit trying to turn, turn everything upside down. This is what they're saying when they go to Jesus and say, tell these people to be quiet. You know, they're claiming that you're the Messiah. And they go, and they could have been saying, and we know that you have claimed to be Messiah because we've been talking all, you know, in two different uh, sessions because we're all in the same place, that more than once Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and that meant that he claimed to be God. Oftentimes you'll talk to people and go, Jesus never claimed to be God. All through the Gospels, Jesus claims to be God. Now he never comes right out and says, I am God. 
But in one case especially, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And what was their response? Because they knew exactly what he said. They picked up stones to stone him because he was committing blasphemy in their case because he said he was God. Because he said, before Abraham was, I am. And the name I am is for God, Yahweh. And he says, and before, that's past tense. He's talking about the past tense. He goes, in the past, I am. They knew exactly what he was saying. And many times Jesus would use that statement and we gloss over it because it doesn't mean as much to him. But he goes, I am. In many places he said, I am. And he talked about how he was the Messiah, how he was all these. And, and we always think the Messiah in a very different statement. But Messiah means anointed one and means God. So we have to understand when he claimed to be the Messiah, he was telling them, I'm God. I am the anointed one of God. So I am the one that's going to make these. So they understood much of what he was saying. And we need to understand, when we read the New Testament, we as Gentiles don't read it quite the same way as it was written because remember the, the Gospels were written by, Gentile, uh, by Jewish believers. They had a different way of looking at what they wrote than we do. And we have to get into their mindset to really understand what was being said. And all over the place they mentioned, he said, I am God. Now, again, he didn't come right out and say, I am God, <laughs> from a Gentile point of view, but from a Jewish point of view, all over the place. There was at least three occasions where they took up stones to, to stone him for it or wanted to uh, kill him. They understood that he was claiming to be the Messiah, God himself. These guys know that he's coming in, riding in as the Messiah and the king. He is claiming to be Messiah. These people are acknowledging that he's Messiah. Now, we don't know how many of them or how large this crowd was, but the entire road was lined with people singing his praises. How many of them actually knew what was going on? I don't know, because what happens in a big crowd of excited people? It gets bigger. A lot of times with people who don't know what's going on, they just know there's a party situation going on, and they're going to be part of this party because it looks like fun. So we don't know how many of them were actual disciples who knew what was going on and how many of them were just... Hey, there's a big, you know, I don't have to go to work. I'm just going to tell them I got caught up in the, in the parade out there and, and enjoyed, enjoying the day, you know, because I'm not going to get, or, or I'm not going to go to work today because there's a big parade out there and nobody's going to come to my store anyway, so I'm going to go join the, the party. We don't know how many of them were part of that group, but they were all cheering. They were all showing honor. They were all saying, here is the king coming in victory. He is coming as the leader. And Jesus said, very interesting, if they were to be quiet, the very stones would cry out. Now, I don't know if this is, going, is a literal statement that Jesus says, hey, if, I, if, I was quiet, if they were quiet, then the stones would literally cry out. It's a possibility. I mean, he's God. It would be interesting. I, would, I don't know if I want to see rocks starting to, to cry out or not, but it would be interesting. Or was he just saying, you know, it's impossible for the rocks to cry out, but, you know, if they, if they were quiet, they would do the impossible. And because God, with God, all things are possible. So he says, even if they were quiet, God would make sure that I got the recognition that I deserve. We would get the recognition that we deserve. I don't know. Either way, it's good. You know, I can't stop the impossible. You want me to tell them to stop, stop this? 
you know, it's almost a spontaneous thing. And, you know, we know, understand how when something starts rolling sometimes, it's almost impossible to get it to stop. The scribes and Pharisees know they can't stop it. Nobody's going to listen to them at this moment. Uh, we don't know how many hundreds or thousands of people were lining this street, and they're going, uh, they're all in support of him. He's very popular. They could not arrest him the whole weeks before this. They could not get it because the people are giving him adoration. And there is a point at time when things are going so far the other direction that leaders can't even make things happen. So they go to Jesus and say, you need to get these people to be quiet before Rome comes down on us. You know, before we end up having a problem, you need to get these people to stop. And Jesus says, you know, you know the rocks will cry out. You might as well stop the high, sea, high tide from coming in. Coming in. Whatever, whatever term you might want to use, his, he was saying the rocks, which is all there. If it was a coastal city, he might have said, well, we can't even keep the high tide from coming coming in. I can't, you know, the storms can't come in, be stopped. Jesus is God. He could have done whatever he wanted, but uh, he's going, this is how far it is. And I always wonder what, what it would have been like if it really did, if he did, if the people did get quiet and the, and the stones cried out. You know, because all over the Proverbs, they use this picture of the hills, hills singing praises, the trees clapping their hands, the, and praising God. I wonder, could nature actually praise God in a way that we don't understand? And I think it's probably true that God has praises all across nature from things that we call inanimate and all these other things because he's the creator. It may be very true that they are praising him at all times. It's an amazing thing as we start learning more about nature, we're starting to find out things that God put into nature before, before we could figure them out and go, wow, this is an amazing amazing thing. There are patterns in flowers and other animals that are seen only in the infrared and the, and the other spectrum that we would never see until we can see things in those other light spectrums. And then we see these patterns that make them a target for certain other animals to be able to see. And God put it there long before we discovered how to use this material to see these things. God is so amazing, the detail he put into creation. And Jesus says, you want me to kill them and be quiet? It would be a waste of time. Now, is the waste of time because they would not stop or that nature itself would worship him? I don't care. Either one works. Either one works. It doesn't matter to me. Because Jesus is saying, I will be worshipped. Whether it's trying to stop them which won't work or nature itself will worship me. Isn't it an amazing thing that God does not need anything? And this is something we have to remember. I've had people teach these lessons, well, God created man because he wanted somebody to worship him. That would indicate that God needed something and God is perfect and without need of anything. So I don't know why he made man. Don't get me wrong. I have no idea. He'll take our worship. But he didn't create us because he needed to be worshipped because the Father, Son, and the Spirit had perfect unity for all of, all of eternity past. They did not need anybody to worship them. So I sometimes struggle with this, God, why did you create man? Especially when you knew that man was going to sin in the first place. You know, when man sinned, it did not surprise God. God did not sit there in heaven and go, oh my goodness, they ate the fruit. What are we going to do now? They ate that fruit. No, he already knew that that was going to happen. He already knew that there was a plan in place that Jesus was going to come, 
lived a perfect life, be sacrificed on the cross so that we could be forgiven and raised again in victory over death. And he knew before he even created man that that was what he was going to do, and he still created man. I don't understand it. And this is what Jesus is saying. I cannot stop it. The universe will give me praise, will give me glory, and I cannot stop it from happening. Because this is what is mine. It is my due. And the Pharisees are very frustrated at this point. Jesus is getting rid of the status quo. They are worried right now about a Roman army coming in to put them into subjection rather than what they have been under. So they have, are desperate at this point to get rid of Jesus. And for the next week we're going to be we're going to take more weeks than that, but for the next week of his life, everything is about them trying to find the right time to get Jesus arrested and killed off. And we're going to see over and over that they want to arrest him, but the crowd is on his side. And they're afraid of a riot. And they always had a big problem. Every time that the Jews rioted, the, the Romans killed a lot of people. Pilate is going to, we find out later on, that Pilate's in a catch-22 because he was told if there was one more riot in Jerusalem because of the people he killed, he was going to be sent to the outer edges of the kingdom and, and away from his nice cushy job as governor of Jerusalem. He would be sent out, if you remember the, thir- the, the, the Nazi Germany, he'd be sent out to the Russian, the Eastern Front, you know, place where everybody died. In his case, it would be to fight the Gauls and the Franks. You know, you're going to be sent up there way up north where it's cold. And you're going to have to live in a tent and be, be at war all the time. And he did not want that. Which is why he was able to say, this man is innocent, but I'm going to kill him to keep peace with the leaders. And he was in a catch-22 over all of this. And the Jewish leaders are trying to find a way, how can we get rid of this man that the people are on his side without having a riot? without having a riot. They were worried about Jesus. They saw his power. They understood his power. They understood that the people liked him more than they liked them, (laughs) which put them in a dangerous place as well. And Jesus said, now is my time. It's time for me to announce that I am Messiah, that I am the one that you have been waiting for. And so we have to decide what are we going to do with the Messiah ourselves? The people at this time have made their decision. We want the Messiah. Now, a week later, they're also saying, crucify him. I don't know if it's the same group, because there's many, many tens of thousands of people living in, in Jerusalem, if not hundreds of thousands. And I've heard many messages go that the same people that said yes to him and the triumphant entry were saying, crucify him uh, a week later. And I don't know that I'd buy that, because it could have been 20,000 people saying, you know, here comes our king and another 20,000 saying crucify him. And I think that's probably more true than the same people being the ones that, that did it. But it's irrelevant because Satan stirs up things that even if it is the same group, it doesn't really matter. But he comes in and says, I am Messiah. And they're saying, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Are we looking at Jesus and making him king of our life? And this is so important for us. What do we do with Jesus? There are many people, especially in America, that just want to have fire insurance. 
Jesus, come into my life and save me. I'm not giving you my life. I just want you to save me so I don't go to hell. I don't know if that's enough to get you saved. If you're not making him Lord, I don't know if that's enough. Those are just words at that point. I'm not anybody's judge. You know whether you're God's child or not. But I do believe that there should be a change in somebody's life that says, I am now his. I am going to do what he says. And there should be a changing of our life from that where we were to something better day by day, week by week. I tell you to look at it year by year because most of us can't see how we've changed day by day. Because we kind of, it's like watching your child grow. You don't realize how, how big the kid is getting until it's time to buy them new clothes and they've, got, they've jumped two sizes. Or you go and see a niece or a nephew that you haven't seen for a year and they were this tall and now they're this tall. You know, maybe not quite that bad, but you understand what I'm saying. You know, it's like you see them and you're going, weren't you, you know, really small last time I saw you? You know, and we don't necessarily see our spiritual growth without looking back over a period of time. But when we look back over a period of time, we should see that we are becoming more like God, more like him in each day, each generation that we're going through. These people are ready to make him God, but are they ready to make him Lord of their life? We're going to see most of them, the answer is no. So the question for us is, what are you doing with God? Is he truly your Lord? Not just your Savior, but your Lord. And that's what's most important, that we call him Lord and we make him Master. And that's something that is mandatory for us. And, you know, we don't have to go through a lot of tribulation yet in America. But when tribulation comes our way, this will really show, is he Lord or not? Will I confess him even if it means losing a job or being sent to prison or being ostracized? Or do I reject him and say, nope, not going to talk about him. I might lose my job. I might lose my reputation. Well, what are we going to do with him? You know, I already know that one day I'll lose my job at the prison because of, you know, even though I don't say a whole lot at the prison necessarily, I do speak out at the prison. But unfortunately, I'm also recorded as saying a lot of things that wouldn't go over very well at the prison. And if they get what I believe, and that's happened to a lot of people where they say something outside, they say something on Facebook or Twitter, and they lose their job because of what they said in their personal time, which is against the law, but it doesn't change things. Where are we going to stand? Are we going to stand for what God says or are we going to back off? And it's getting harder and harder in our country to stand for what God says. Because we have a whole world that is saying a whole lot of stuff that is not biblical and not right. Where are we going to stand with? Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Help us to see that it is your time. Help us to understand to make you Lord and Master of our lives. Lord, if there's anybody listening online that doesn't know you, we ask that today that they will say, Lord, I am a sinner. I deserve hell. I believe that you died for my sins. Come into my life and save me. And that they will tell some Christian what they've done. Lord, for those of us here that know you, we ask that today we will make a conscious decision to make you Lord. And if you're already Lord of our life, to help us do more of our following towards you. And we challenge that to be the case. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes. And the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God. And this is a problem. 
we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Their wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.